0: Hello, and welcome to RD and the In-Betweens. I'm your host, Kelly Preece, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the fourth in our series on decolonising research. In this episode, we hear from Professor Rewyn Connell from the University of Sydney on decolonising the work of research. Greetings from Sydney in Australia. I'm Raywin Connell, um, and I'm speaking to you on the, the subject of, of decolonising the work of research and the significance of the word work will come through. Um, I'm uh, pleased to to send you best wishes for this very interesting and um, imaginative idea of a a festival of decolonization in in relation to research, uh, which uh, event of a kind I I haven't uh, come across before. Uh, I'm interested, of course, because I am a researcher. I've been working for going on around 50 years uh, as a researcher, still trying to learn about it, and and there is always much to learn, Um, but um, I um, do have some experience, then, um, and that tells me that research is, is above all else a practical matter, matter of things you actually do, forms of labor and, uh, and communication. And that's basically the approach that I want to take in, in discussing decolonization. And I wanted to start um, with um, a couple of images of the country that I'm speaking from. Uh, which illustrates something about uh, knowledge and, and coloniality. So at this point, I will attempt the great um, technological feat of sharing my screen, um, choosing my PowerPoint presentation, going share, um, And then attempting even to go full screen. So, is that successful? Has that come through? Yes, yeah. Ah, excellent, excellent. Okay, we're underway then. Let me show you a couple of pictures of Australia, not the tourist version, um, but one from Australian history. Australia is a settler colonial country. It's it's modern society uh, has taken a form shaped by about 230 years of colonisation, immigration, and a forcible occupation of the land that uh, had previously been occupied by Indigenous people who have been here for, according to the archaeologists, something like 70,000 years. This is one of the oldest continuously existing cultures in the world, if not the oldest. But what I'm showing you here is a picture um, from the late uh, 19th century, um, a picture drawn by one of the colonizers um, and published in a a, a local magazine in Melbourne, um, showing the kind of settlement that uh, moved British occupation out across the land. Uh, This is what we in Australia have for a long time called a station. Uh, Perhaps what the uh, uh, Americans uh, understand is by by a ranch. Uh, It's in the Western District of Victoria, a place called Hopkins Hill. Um, And it shows the house that was built by the family to whom this land was granted under colonial rule by the colonial government. And I like this picture because uh, not only does it show how um, basically European style of architecture was brought here with uh, perhaps a a touch of Indian imperial experience in it in the wide veranda, um, but also something about the people who did it. Because if you look closely Um, at the picture, you'll see four people uh, in the middle of the picture standing in front of the house. Uh, They are white, they are men, and they're all carrying guns. And somehow that encapsulates a certain relationship to the land and a certain process uh, of taking land uh, that has been characteristic of the, the whole imperial story. The second image I want to show you uh, is a modern one. It's contemporary. It's uh, now, can I cause, no, why, ah, there we are, that's what I do. This is a painting by uh, a woman of an Aboriginal community, indigenous community from the central desert. of the continent um, in a style which uh, some of you will recognize because this is now the most famous art style in Australia known as dock painting, central desert painting. Um, It's a a woman's image um, painted by a woman and embodying knowledge, embedding knowledge, uh, which belongs to the women of that particular community. Um, It's called Honey Ant Dreaming. And it's not only an image of the land, uh, the circular parts of the drawing represent uh, water holes or sources of water in what is a very dry, um, hot landscape. And places where groups of women may gather at a particular time of year and the um, U-shaped symbols in the painting uh, represent people sitting in a sandy place. Uh, There's also a representation of water, the lines connecting, uh, the water holes show flows of water across the land. And also embedded in the picture is knowledge of when a particular food source um, the, the honey ants, which are a species of ant uh, that gather honey from flowers and um, uh, from the plants of, of the area, um, are, are available to be, to be harvested by, by the community. So what you've got here is not just a, a, an image, but also a body of knowledge. Uh, what we might think of as multidisciplinary knowledge about geography, about hydrography, um, about social relations as to who's entitled to have this knowledge, and also about biology. Um, And that is uh, something I'd like you to bear in mind when I talk about the different patterns of knowledge uh, that, that we come across in thinking about uh, coloniality and, and decolonization. But I want to move from that uh, immediately to a territory that's more familiar uh, to, to most of us here, uh, and that is the disciplinary knowledge system or knowledge formation um, that is characteristic of universities in all parts of the world, Uh, that produces the mainstream curriculum that that I have taught and um, some of you have taught and um, all of you have studied. Um, That's a a pattern of knowledge um, which has been analyzed in uh, epistemology, sociology of knowledge and so on and so forth a great deal. Um, It's um, something that I've written about um, in if you'll excuse the advertisement in my most recent book, uh, known as the Good University, the first chapter of that book uh, discusses the research, what I call the research-based knowledge formation and discusses the nature of the labor uh, that goes into research um, and the different kinds of labor actually that combine to produce, Uh, research-based knowledge. Uh, As I say in in that book, there are multiple forms of labour in research, five principal ones that I identify. Uh, One is consultation of the archive, uh, that is the the body of knowledge already existing in a disciplinary field. Um, When graduate students um, write their review of the literature in chapter one of the PhD thesis. That's basically what they're doing. Um, then there's the, the labour of encounter, which may be data gathering in the field, it may be experimentation, maybe the study of literary texts in the humanities or artistic images. of that, but the encounter of the researcher or researchers with their materials uh, is a distinct form of labor. And when they've encountered, or as they're encountering, they're also concerned with what it means. And this involves a kind of labor that I call patterning, uh, which involves theorization, it involves data analysis, say statistical data analysis, involves interpretation of texts. Uh, and the like. And that also is required uh, in the overall movement of disciplinary knowledge. And then there's what I call the labor of critique. When you've got your materials, when you've done your patterning work, you want to know what you've got that's different from what was there before. So you have to relate it back to the archive that you knew at the beginning of the process and revise the archive in the light of the new knowledge that you've generated. That's the labour that I call critique. And in that sense, critique is the growth point um, of disciplinary knowledge. And then finally, and uh, important as as all the rest, is the broadcasting uh, of the results of the labour Uh, because what we're talking about is a collective form of knowledge uh, produced by a workforce, um, and the circulation of the results of research labour is absolutely essential uh, to the the process as a whole, Uh, hence the whole apparatus of journals, online communication conferences, and of course teaching too, as well as part of the broadcasting. Okay, so you can see that there's a a very active labor process, quite a complex labor process that's involved in the production if we think of of, uh, knowledge as as produced. There is a production process and, and that's it. Now, this is very much collective labor and collective labor requires a workforce. You know, knowledge doesn't drop from the sky. People have to work and there has to be a group working and organization of that group. And this is where different knowledge formations differ. So in indigenous knowledge of the kind that you saw in the Honey and Dreaming painting, um, the knowledge bearers, the workforce, are traditionally known in Aboriginal communities as the elders. In Islamic-based knowledge, such as Islamic jurisprudence and as Islamic theology, the workforce is known as the Ulama, the Islamic scholars um, who are not a priesthood, but are, are respected as scholars, as knowledge bearers. In the knowledge, in the sorry, in the research-based knowledge formation, it is the researchers, popularly known as scientists. Uh, course, we know to include uh, humanist researchers, social scientists, as well as natural scientists. Now this workforce has existed for a considerable time. Um, and the, <coughs> the research-based knowledge formation has a history of about 500 years. Uh, This is also the lifespan of imperialism, of overseas imperialism from Europe, and that is not a coincidence because the two are, in fact, very closely related, Uh, so closely related that I don't think we can think of disciplinary knowledge really outside a global economy of knowledge, which has its roots in the story of imperial expansion, colonial encounters, and what we might call the knowledge dividend of empire, because it wasn't just the gold or the slaves uh, that flowed back under the control of the colonizers, it was also knowledge. And knowledge in many forms, uh, you know, social scientific knowledge about the societies that were encountered. Natural science knowledge, and so on. Um, here is an example of the knowledge that was brought back from the colonized world. This is an important document um, in the history of biological science, uh, specifically biogeography. Um, it's uh, uh, the product of uh, oppression. Aristocrat called Alexander von Humboldt, um, who may be known, his name may be known to you, uh, who went as a young man uh, to the colonial areas of north, Northern and uh, West Coast uh, South America, then under Spanish control and studied the plants, animals, geography, atmosphere. He was one of the pioneers of atmospheric science as well as biogeography. And this is a a kind of map that he had drawn on his return to Europe, which synthesized a huge amount of data about the distribution of particular species of plants Uh, according to height um, from sea level up to the Andes Mountains and across the continent from east to west. And that is a typical kind of process of uh, going to the colonies and bringing back data, which is then processed in the metropole. Actually, Humboldt is not the most famous person who did that. Uh, The most famous person, undoubtedly, is Charles Darwin, uh, who spent three years sailing around the colonial and post-colonial world in the famous... Uh, a Royal Navy ship, the Beagle, and brought back uh, home that geological and biological data that was so important in the creation of the theory of evolution and modern biology. And the data that came back in all these different um, fields of knowledge were then accumulated in the institutions of the global North, the Botanic Gardens, the universities, the scientific societies, the journals, what we now think of as databases, data archives, and so on, and theorized and turned into organized knowledge in those kinds of institutions. And this applied to, for those of you who are social scientists, this applied in the social sciences too. And here's a fascinating example. This is a book by some Australian colleagues. About a, about a famous 19th century book of anthropology called Camilleroy and Kurnai uh, about kinship systems, which was a big concern of anthropology throughout its history. Now, what um, our colleagues uh, uncovered when they went back into the archives of this book and the 19th century authors of this work on on aboriginal kinship, um, is the discovery that they, they this wasn't, if you like, the an experimental research or just an observational one, like by going and looking at a tree. You can't do that with a kinship system. You have to ask about it. Um, so in effect, the colonizers in this case, the authors of the anthropological um, treatise, were engaging with, in a sense, employing the elders of the local Aboriginal communities as their knowledge sources and thus extended the knowledge workforce of the empire of the imperial knowledge system to the colonized people, the intellectual workers of the colonized people, as well as the colonizers. And in that sense, I would never say that the research-based knowledge formation is Western knowledge or Western science. I don't think that's right. It is, if anything, if you've got to use a phrase like that, it's imperial science because it embeds an enormous amount of knowledge and know-how from the colonised and colonised regions uh, as well as the the knowledge of the colonisers. So, um, the, as the the economy of knowledge under empire evolved, it developed a very significant uh, division of labor. And this is something I learned particularly from the work of a West African philosopher Pauline Nontonji, uh, who's right. If you want to ever follow these issues up. I very strongly recommend his his work to you. Most of it is available in English, um, also available in in French. And Tocchi pointed out that um, fields, the familiar fields of knowledge that we we teach in universities, um, uh, in those fields, the colonized and post-colonial world, so contemporary Africa, mainly functions as a data mine, uh, which produces raw materials that is then organized and processed by theoretical labor in the global metropole, in the imperial center. So there is kind of division of labor built into the structure of the global economy of knowledge, where there's mainly a flow of data from the colonized and post-colonial world to the imperial center, and a flow of theory and methodology the other way, which frame the collection of data. And that is the principal role in the whole global economy of knowledge of academics, researchers, knowledge workers in the colonized and post-colonial world. And there's one more thing that has to be said about this economy of knowledge, that it was also based on certain exclusions. It excluded the kind of knowledge that we saw in the Honey Ant Dreaming painting, that is indigenous knowledge formations of the the colonized. The the interdisciplinary, non-disciplinary knowledge that you saw in that case uh, also excluded was uh, alternative universalisms, like Chinese organization of medical knowledge, like Islamic jurisprudence, um, those um, forms of knowledge that were not so place-based as indigenous knowledge usually is, uh, also competed, if you like, for the interest of the world as a whole. Uh, but had roots in a different cultural formation. And then there's the knowledge that I call Southern theory, which is basically knowledge produced in the colonial encounter itself by the colonized and sometimes by colonizers in the the colonial context. Um, These two have mostly been, if not uh, dramatically excluded, uh, then strongly marginalised, um, as you see when you look at the statistics on the leading journals in almost every university discipline, the leading journals, the ones that are most heavily cited, the most respected, almost all come from the global north. Okay, that's, that's what we're up against. Um, that's why the decolonization project is truly important. For university teaching, university based research, all university disciplines are affected by this. Which then leads me to the question how do we do it? How do we contest um, the inequalities, the the geographical exclusions, um, and so forth that, that have shaped? Uh, the knowledge that is taught and circulated in, in the, universe, the global university system. Well, there are many, if you like, democratic knowledge projects in the world. Uh, let me show you a few. Uh, here's one from Sweden. Um, it's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, this book has never been translated into English, which I think is a great pity because it's a lovely book. Uh, Its title means, Dig Where You Stand. And it's about a workers self-education project uh, of researching their own jobs, researching the history of their own jobs. It was taken up by the unions in Sweden. It became a popular knowledge movement, like, you know, popular uh, ornithography, bird watching, uh, popular astronomy, this became popular social science. Um, who better to understand the history of their job than the person who has the job now? But that led outwards to the industry, the history of the industry, the history of the community. Uh, it led outwards to the economy as a whole, and ultimately, of course, two questions about globalization, too. So fascinating stuff. Um, let me show you another. This is from Central America. Um, The work of uh, Ignacio Martín Baró, a a Jesuit psychologist, um, uh, no longer with us as a result of of repressive violence um, in in that region, but who tried to create a new pattern, new kind of psychology. That was his teaching discipline. He was a university teacher. which would be produce knowledge that was actually useful to the oppressed indigenous and working classes of the Central America region where he worked. Um, he uh, developed, the, 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 it came to be called liberation psychology on the model of liberation theology. Um, it uh, never became popular in mainstream academic psychology. But if any of you are psychologists, I can recommend Martin Barreau as a fascinating, interesting um, example of uh, other ways of thinking about your discipline. Let me show you another. Uh, this is another university. Uh, this is a picture taken in almost exactly 100 years ago uh, when the uh, great Bengali poet, Rabindranath Tagore, who many of you will know, um, who had been uh, working to create a relevant form of schools uh, in Bengal, um, and decided that a, a good school system needed a college top, if you like, a tertiary education top. Uh, he looked at the colonial universities that had been set up by the colonizers in India. Uh, quite a relatively large university system was created uh, in colonial India, but he wasn't satisfied with it because it was controlled by the colonial, colonial power. Uh, so he created his own, and this is it. This is the launch ceremony of the college that he called Visva Bharati, uh, which he understood as, which he intended to be, what he called a meeting place of civilizations, Um, what we might call a genuinely multicultural curriculum uh, on a global scale. Um, So in there, knowledge from uh, indigenous traditions in India was taught, knowledge from Europe was taught, academics were taught from Europe too, knowledge from China was taught, knowledge from Tibet. Um, It was intended to be a meeting place for different knowledge formations to create a a unique curriculum. Well, hopefully not unique. Now, it was a struggle. Um, It ran into financial trouble, um, but it it survived. And it uh, is still there today uh, in a somewhat different form. It's now a public university in the Indian university system. Um, but they are very proud uh, of this, this history and it is a fascinating fascinating story. So we have from below projects, knowledge projects. We have new workforces and institutions as part of the contestation. Um, and we also have a contestation that takes the form of shifting the logic of a given methodology, a given set of research methods. Those of you who are interested in decolonizing knowledge will very possibly come across this book, and I can strongly recommend it, indeed, to everyone. Linda Tuiwai Smith is a a teacher in Maori communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. where who that is, those communities in the last generation who have developed a number of higher educational institutions based on Maori cultural principles of teaching and learning and research. And this book is gives a whole stack of examples of forms of research that treat the Indigenous people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, not as the objects of research, but as subjects, as participants and designers in the research process, where the intention is to study Maori um, situations, uh, Maori experience, Maori contemporary life. Okay, now, those of you who've read this book will know that it's uh, some of its procedures are relatively familiar in uh, qualitative uh, methods in the social sciences. And some people uh, have uh, drawn the, I think, mistaken conclusion um, that Indigenous knowledge is uh, necessarily qualitative uh, in contrast to quantitative, that is. Uh, um, And this, uh, in fact, is not the case. And here's the demonstration. Uh, a book called Indigenous Statistics um, by Maggie Walter, an Australian Indigenous colleague of mine, sociology, Chris Anderson from North America, from, from Canada, Indigenous scholar there, um, who've taken up the techniques of quantitative uh, research, uh, as for instance in censuses and surveys. Uh, that have historically been used by the colonial power, by the colonial state, to uh, study and manage indigenous communities, indigenous lives. The book mounts an argument for um, what the, the authors call data sovereignty for changing the power relations that are involved in the collection of data and control over the process of crunching the numbers and turning them to the purposes of the indigenous communities rather than the purposes of colonial government. So uh, there's a range of ways in which logics can be shifted in decolonization, uh, connections can be made Which brings me back to the question of the workforce. How, If we want a workforce in the future in universities that have capacities for this kind of decolonial work, how do we teach it? Do we, for instance, uh, teach them new rules for disciplines? Um, Well, I would argue that Uh, Indigenous knowledge, in fact, all forms of of decolonized knowledge, tend to move across genres and across disciplines. So the simple disciplinary agenda um, is not adequate. Let me illustrate this from one of my uh, great books, List in Sociology, Uh, a book published a bit over 100 years ago. Uh, called Native Life in South Africa. It sounds like the name of a familiar anthropological monograph, but it's not. It's a highly politicised book contesting the seizure of Indigenous land in South Africa by the new independent um, uh, colonial state that had been set up following what in Britain is known as the Boer War. Um, That is a white controlled uh, state, which was the ancestor then of the apartheid regime. The author of this book, uh, who you see in this picture, Solomon Plachet, was the secretary of the organisation, which later became the African National Congress. And he determined that um, a knowledge project was needed to gather the information about how this horrendous legislation, which was expropriating indigenous land on a huge scale, how that had come about and what its effects were. Well, black people in South Africa at that time couldn't afford a horse. So he went around the country on a bike, uh, interviewing the displaced families who'd been moved off As a result of the seizure of land in this phase of the colonizing project in South Africa, and wrote it up in this book. It's an amazing book. It's not only sort of um, engaged survey research and and interview based social science, it's also historical analysis of the legislation, cultural critique. of the, um, the, the political agenda involved, and so it's an amazing book, uh multidisciplinary, absolutely. You could not confine it uh within a single discipline. Okay, do we teach our workforce by teaching them new canons, you know, new famous names? Not, I think, um, as a systematic business, I don't think we need. Uh, you know, to displace our our Darwins or our Max Weber's or our Karl Marx's with with alternative Darwins, Marxists and Weber's. Uh, What we need is a much richer archive for that first stage in the research-based knowledge process of consulting the archive. Well, I'm a feminist and a feminist researcher. I've been also researching the history of feminism to some extent. Um, and uh, in the course of that, uh, trying to apply a decolonizing agenda. Um, I've been coming across uh, histories that I didn't know uh, that weren't in the familiar histories um, that, that I had read. Um, and here's a couple of people who might figure, uh, well, at least one of them, sorry, I thought I had another before that, um, in, in, if that history were told from a, a decolonizing perspective. One might see this woman, Bina Agarwal, a development economist, environmental thinker, socialist feminist from uh, India, as perhaps the most um, significant feminist theorist in our generation. Uh, done amazing work. I mean, much of what I've been saying raises issues about land. Uh, she wrote the book on gender and land. It's called A Field of One's Own. It should be in your library. If it's not, um, uh, go and bite the librarian's ear until they, they get it. An amazing, truly amazing book, and an example of the power uh, of um, the 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 social knowledge that could come out of a post-colonial context. Okay, Um, and then we come to the question of how we think all of this. Um, If we recognize the plurality of knowledge formations, do we then wind up with a kind of epistemology, a theory of knowledge, which is like a mosaic, a whole lot of different, colored tiles, each complete in itself, but not speaking to each other. That's where some decolonizing arguments head. Um, And I can respect them um, because that involves respect for all the separate, all the different knowledge projects, the different communities uh, who might be producing knowledge in distinctive ways. But I also think that uh, the decolonization process or the the process now of equalizing resources on a global scale, including the resource of knowledge, this needs the practices of connection as well as um, as separateness, connection and and mutual learning. And this is an example of an attempt to, to make that argument the importance of South-South links and South-North links, as well as the North-South flow of theory and methodology that we're so familiar with. Um, Chilla-Borbeck, another Australian colleague of mine, uh, makes this argument for global feminisms, uh, attempting to break the, if you like, the Northern hegemony, in global feminist discourse um, and develop an understanding of what it would be uh, to give full recognition to the experience and theories and knowledge of feminist uh, communities in the different parts of the post-colonial world. It's a fascinating story, fascinating argument. Um, she talks about the processes, what she calls braiding at the borders rather than an uh, imposition of, of hegemony, um, which is a, an image that suggests the kind of respect uh, that might be leaded, needed for uh, inter-community, inter-regional uh, connections in the future. So <clears throat> if I'm right that we do need a practice of connection, um, then we can speak of knowledge on a world scale um, as the future of knowledge without northern hegemony. Saying that as the, the goal of my argument doesn't mean that the North doesn't matter in this process. I think that decolonization concerns the global North. Uh, as as intimately and importantly as it concerns uh, regions in the global south. And, and that's the reason I'm very pleased with what you're doing at Exeter. Um, it, there are resistances to decolonization which I've certainly uh, frequently run into in the um, 20 years or more that I've been making these kinds of arguments around the traps. Uh, Some of them are uh, rooted in in racism, some of them are rooted, some of the objections that is, and resistances are rooted in in class privilege, but some are more respect worthy. Um, They may uh, reflect, for instance, some of the resistance to decolonization that I have uh, encountered uh, reflects a fear on the part of academic workers of losing the skills and knowledge that they already have or being unable to pass them on to the next generation in the way that they expect to. And therefore, I think it's important to, um, to argue for these processes as an expansion of knowledge, not a not a contraction. I um, think we, in as a practical matter, we cannot escape. We cannot just jump out of the global economy of knowledge. It's here. It links the university system around the world. Now, this is what we've got. What we're we're confronting every day um, on campuses. Some. Decolonial arguments say that the correct response to this is to de-link from it. It's a term from decolonial economics, actually. uh, But it works for uh, decolonial epistemology as well. I would rather say we should be trying to transform rather than simply separate from the existing global economy of knowledge, partly because that knowledge already embeds so much knowledge from the global south that we don't want to abandon. We need, certainly, um, to link uh, existing disciplinary knowledge with new perspectives and local practices in different ways. Um, But I don't think we need a, a radical abandonment of forms of knowledge that are already able to be used. So uh, I see the, the decolonizing projects, they're not as radically displacing existing knowledge formation, but basically is the cutting edge of projects for the, for the democratization of knowledge. That project which we've seen before in local forms, like the Dig Where You Stand project in Sweden, or liberation psychology in Central America, uh, we can now imagine on a world scale. And that is what the the decolonization of of research uh, now, I think, has to be about. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.